You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. First Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking specifically at 10 through 12, but I know you all love to hear me read so much that uh, we're going to refresh all of 3 through 12. Uh, This section is, um, I think, really laying the groundwork of joy that's going to flow into the rest of the book. The rest of the book, well, I'll get there. So right now we're going to read verses 3 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, focusing in on 10 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours Searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven Things into which angels long to look. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Hopefully as we went through that passage, you're remembering every one of those sermons that we've gone through, about 10 of them so far now in these first 12 verses specifically. Surely you remember every little detail we've tried to glean out of this passage but I, we're spending time just in these last three verses because I think 3 through 12, as I was beginning to say, really set the tone for the rest of the book. You can look at verse 13, what we didn't read, uh, the therefore. Paul, Peter is going to go on, he's going to say, because of all of this, therefore, and you can kind of flip on back all the way through 1 Peter, and he'll say, so, but... And he's, but do this, but you are. And then he says, uh, 
Oh, and then he goes on, be subject to, and then he speaks to servants, and then likewise, and then finally, and then since, therefore, all of these practical applications and implications are going to flow from the, the beauty of, of, and the, the, the anchor of grasping what Peter is saying in these first verses. So we're, going to just, we're, we're trying to tack on to the end, verses 10 through 12. There's a brief ending comment about this salvation, but they aren't throwaway words. And I say that because of a couple of reasons. I really don't think they are, but also because the Bible knows of no such thing as throwaway words. Every, every word inspired by the Holy Spirit is profitable for our reproof, training in righteousness, correction and error. And so... Peter is writing this with great purpose. And I think we'll see that there is, this is not a break from what he's saying uh, in the earlier verses. This is a continuation or an undergirding of the comforts that he's been trying to give to his readers all along the way. This beautiful reality that has been put before us in these beginning verses. They have been Born again, they've been caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's this salvation brought to us through faith. In fact, guarded for us through faith that Peter has gone on and on about. Until we're being guarded for it, this faith, this, this faith is guarding us so that we will get to our inheritance, but it also is guarding the inheritance, that this inheritance that we have, this salvation, which is obtaining God himself, is imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it's kept for us, and we are kept for it until this great final day. This is all that he's writing about here in verses 3 through 8. And in the midst of it, he's making the point to this church, we have gone back to this several times. This church is in the diaspora, and the dispersion in these five regions are undergoing difficulty. They're undergoing trials. They're undergoing suffering. And so he mentions that even in the midst of the trials and the sufferings, though necessary, that through all of them, through all of these trials, they will only increase our faith and add to our glory and enjoyment of Jesus on the final day. It's, I mean, there's a reason why we're, we're 12 sermons in and, and to, to 12 verses of First Peter. It's so rich. You can just camp out here and think upon this and meditate upon this over and over and over again. The incredible gift that has been given to us by the grace and mercy of God. We've been stressing this reality. Peter is, knows his audience, and so he's shining the glories of the gospel before them precisely because he knows the trials and the difficulties that they specifically are facing, but also I think there's just a general reality, a general understanding that despite their specific circumstances, every single one of us lives in a broken and fallen world. And there are many good and glorious and wonderful days. Thank God common grace exists. 
And so there, is still, there are still uh, beautiful moments in all of our lives. But at the same time, we live in a broken world and there are many valleys. There are many dark times. There are many tough times because we live in a broken and fallen world. And so, highlighting this whole salvation here, verses 3 through 9, he speaks of the long history of this great work that God has been about this whole time. He speaks about this long history. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, all that he's written about, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Now he's not changing gears. He's not going on to some other theological point. He's reiterating the comfort that there is in to his, for his listeners of this salvation. It's a comfort because Peter is highlighting this truth. God is working out the purposes that he planned ages ago. God is working out his purposes. The prophets prophesied years ago, decades, millennia before this, the comings of the coming of Christ, the sufferings and the subsequent glories. And so Peter includes this because he wants the church to know what has happened with Christ, what indeed is even happening in your life, is not a surprise. God is working out his purposes. The prophets were inquiring and they were searching. They were looking. What is God up to? And they're looking down the corridor of history and they're, they're seeing sufferings coming. They're seeing glories coming and they're trying to piece it all together. Who is this Christ that is coming? What time will this happen? How is this all going to weave together? They're inquiring and looking. They had some understanding, but it was limited. How that exactly was going to play out, they didn't know. It's still a mystery to them. Now, at this point, I had to make a decision. There's a couple ways we could go from here. And one fun direction to go would just to be launched into just some biblical theology and just take a little mini-series even and go through all these types and shadows and what these prophets were actually seeing. We could do that and it would be very beneficial. And in fact, I recommend doing something like that. We could, do, we could go to a place like, I think my first inclination along with many Bible readers is Isaiah 53 where you see both of these things wrapped up in one reality. You see the sufferings of Christ that were coming. In Isaiah 53, the suffering servant song, you see um, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah 700, I think, years before the coming of Christ. 400, 700, many years before, I think 700. He's, he's predicting these sufferings. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The prophet's looking down the corridor of time and he's seen the coming sufferings of Christ. But you go on to the end of 53, verse 11. 
uh, or verse 10, you could say, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Well, how is he going to be killed and yet see his offspring? He shall prolong his day. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. How is he going to have sufferings and yet the will of the Lord is going to prosper in his hand? Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquity. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, I said I wasn't going to do much time on that. And then I just did all of that. But the... the, the Isaiah 53 is one of those sections. We could go to a prophecy like Isaiah 7:14 about the virgin bearing a son. We could talk about um, going to Psalm 22, all kinds of psalms which speak of this coming suffering, this coming persecution, and, and yet also lots of psalms about the, the righteous exaltation of the servant of God. And we could go back not only through references like that, we could also do types and shadows, right? Because they are looking as well, the prophets, those who are trying to understand and inquiring, they're looking back at um, instances like Abraham and, and Isaac, like the whole Mount Moriah and offering up a son and he carries the wood on his back and he goes to be a sacrifice. And then on the mount, God provides the sacrifice. The ram comes in and it's said that the Lord will provide. And so you have imagery like that. You have all sorts of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And there's a fourth man who looks like the son of man who saves them from the fire. There's all kinds of imagery and we can march down that, but we're not going to. <laughs> Sorry. That, that was just a little, I, I encourage you to do something like that. And honestly, now this is, this is totally practical application for you. If you're interested in that, this is, I mean, this is all seriousness. The best place to do that is to get a good children's Bible and read through it. Uh, there's one we have, I think it's called All About Jesus or something like that, Storybook Bible. And I read it, we've read through it a couple times with the kids, and I, I know that I benefit more than they do from it. But it, the story's tying them all back about how Jesus is in the midst of this story. Another one is the Jesus Storybook Bible. We actually have copies of that back on the shelf. You could borrow one of those that weaves the story, the narrative of the, the reality of Christ. These prophets, as they're searching and inquiring, pointing forward to Jesus. So I just throw that out there and commend that to you. Because doing this will put you in good company. The church has been doing that for, for ages. But I don't think that's what Peter writes this there for. I don't think he's just giving you a homework assignment. He's not writing that down and say, hey, join the church and look up all these interesting things. I don't, as profitable as that may be, that's not what he's doing. Instead, there's a connection to all that he's written. He's saying this, for a reason. There's a comfort in these verses that seem kind of like, okay, the prophets prophesied, they inquired. There's a comfort here that's connected to the comfort that he's been writing about that will aid us through all the highs and lows of this life. One commentator said it this way, said the prophetic predictions were not without relevance for the original hearers, 
for they would give comfort and hope to those who looked forward in faith. But primarily they were given to minister to you, bringing comfort and hope, that is to new covenant believers. So as these first 12 verses have been doing, they continue to do in our passage this morning. They're written down to bring comfort and confidence to God's people through the trials of this life. Well, how so? Well, I want to give three implications from our text that I think brings comfort and hope to the New Testament believer in a fallen and broken world. The first implication is that God doesn't dial 911. So I went through this stage with Joel, like we were, you know, I was going off to work and, you know, you just, your kid gets old enough that you think, I, I don't know the future, I don't know what's going to happen, but it'd be nice to have two people in the house that could call 911 if something goes wrong. And so you probably have all gone through the stage of raised kids where you eventually teach them, you pick up the phone, you check it for a dial tone, actually you don't do that anymore. <laughs> Make sure no one else is on the party line. That's what I always had to do. Pick up the phone. Is anybody else talking? If you need an emergency, ask them to get off. You need to call the end. No, was anybody else on a party line ever? Come on. Yeah, I know. I was on my, I was on my grandparents' party line for a long time. They probably heard all kinds of interesting uh, junior high stories. No, but anyway, it, you, you teach them how to get a phone out and how to call, either call me, how to call 911. Why do I have to teach that? I have no idea what the future holds. I have no idea when I leave the house in the morning, when I leave the house after break, after lunch, I have no idea what's going to transpire in that afternoon. So you try to, you try to put um, resources and, and protections up around because you just don't know what's going to happen. 911 exists because we are not all-knowing. And therefore, we are not, and we're not powerful enough to make substantial changes even when we want to. And so things like emergencies and emergency networks have to exist because we have emergencies. God has no emergencies. He did not have to learn to dial 911. All that he has done, he has planned to do. These people, for thousands of years, these prophets, they're searching, they're inquiring, they're predicting the coming sufferings. That was not a shock. Jesus dying on the cross wasn't like God was in heaven. He thought, oh no, I, didn't, I had no idea they were going to act that way. Not a surprise. Not a surprise. The coming glories of Christ, not a surprise to God. This does not diminish the, the incredible tragedy and difficulty of the cross. Like just because it was planned doesn't mean it was easy for Jesus. He sweat drops like blood in the garden. He, he, he was uh, mortified in the, not mortified, he was, he was struggling under great distress in the garden beforehand. It does not mean that the cross, the suffering was not incredibly difficult. It was real pain. It was real suffering. It was real sin to murder Jesus. Yet, that was not unexpected. They prophesied years in advance the coming sufferings and also the coming glories. All of it coming about just as God had planned. Peter says in his sermon in Acts chapter 3, 18, he says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And his first resurrection, post-resurrection sermon 
in 2.23, Peter also says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Nothing, what, what the comfort that Peter is putting forward for them in the middle of necessary trials. Remember we talked about how in the world are these necessary? There's comfort in knowing God doesn't drive ambulances. He doesn't call 911. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. He is working out his purposes. Brings us to our second point that both the sufferings and the glories of Christ were foreseen. There isn't a moment of the life of Christ that wasn't accounted for. Every grief he suffered, every moment of glory, no surprise, but instead completely planned according to the perfect will of God. Why is that a comfort? Why is the sufferings of Christ being totally, fully planned out? How could that be a comfort? What in the world? How is that a comfort? It's a comfort because there isn't a moment of Christ's life and there isn't a moment of your life that isn't accounted for, which means nothing, not even the really hard things that come your way are ever pointless or meaningless. No such thing as fate, no such thing as accidental occurrences, no such thing as just the way the mop flops. Nothing, not even really hard things that we can't understand, we can't figure out, they aren't pointless. They aren't meaningless. We may not be told the point. We may not be told the meaning. But that does not mean there isn't one. God knows about them. God purposes them. God is in charge of all of history, not driving or calling 911. God is working out his purposes. He doesn't dial 911. Both the sufferings and the glories of Christ even are foreseen, which takes us quickly to our last point. There is a lot of ink spilt on the end of verse 12 here. I mean, these prophets, not to skip over this stuff, but we're kind of, you know, they're, they're looking at the times of Christ. It's revealed to them. They're not serving themselves, but future generations, those who are going to hear this good news, that you, the good news that comes to them by the Holy Spirit, things into which angels long to look. How many of you have heard sermons on this? People like to mention it in certain camps, like the angels, the mysteries that angels are trying to look into. Our last point, even the angels are longing to understand what in the world is going on. I mean, that, that to me is the, the plain reading of this. The angels, supernatural beings, no offense, probably way smarter than you. Like, I mean, these, these are supernatural creatures. They've got it. They, they're up in heaven around the throne room. They're, they're, invo- they're invested. They see the real world, but they're also in the supernatural realm. They know and understand things beyond our comprehension. But even they, looking at the, the, glory, the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories, they're up in heaven like, boy, I can't wait till we can figure out what's going on here. How is this all going to be orchestrated together? The angels long to look into these things and understand them. How is this all going to play out? 
the angels, seeing the sufferings, hearing the promises of the future glory, witnesses to the resurrection of Christ, seeing him ascended into at the right hand of God the Father, seeing it with their eyes, seeing so much of redemptive history played out, are still in heaven, longing to understand why this, why that. That was weird. How come it went down that way? Longing to understand. They're longing to look, to see, to understand all that has gone on. What does this not knowing? We like the angels. I think Peter is writing that because to give us a comfort. We like the angels look at all kinds of things and we think, I don't know how that one's going to work. I don't know how that makes any sense. That God doesn't drive an ambulance. Look at, look at this event from just the past, look at events just from the past week. And you think, I don't know. That seems really, that doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Well, congratulations. You're in, the, you're in a fellowship with angels that sometimes look and think, hmm, this is interesting. What does it produce? It produces arrogant frustration because we think God should give me an explanation. God owes me what he is doing. And it produces in us arrogant frustration. It's idolatry, actually. It's rebellion. What should it produce? Creaturely humility. Creaturely humility. Responding in faith and trust in God and in his good purposes, though we cannot always see them and we cannot trace his hand. What's the saying? Even when you can't trace his hand, you can trust his heart. You can't figure out where he's writing these lines. Where is he going with what he's doing? We cannot see. Even the angels are longing to look. Where is this all? How is this all going to weave together? But you can trust his heart and that he has promised that it is. At the revealing of Jesus Christ, it's going to result in praise and honor and glory at his revealing. Will you understand every trip along the way? The angels don't even, but he is going to bring it about. Job understood this necessary humility. We were just, uh, we looked at this yesterday morning in men's Bible study, and I just thought it was so good. I want to throw it in here. Job 26, Job understood this creaturely humility. It took, I mean, it took him, he went through a lot to get there. Job 26, uh, verse 7 Job speaking of God, he says of God, he binds up waters in his thick clouds and the cloud is not split open under them. He's just making the observation, clouds hold water. And I mean, and I know we could talk about the water cycle and whatever, but honestly, what kind of an idea is that? <laughs> that the water that's here evaporates and then it gathers and then it travels and then it falls like, how does God do this? Like, trying to search out his ways is, is quite difficult. Jumping on down to verse 11. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea. When you think about the, the crashing of the waves, other, other places, I, can't, I didn't look it up, but in Job, it talks about that he drew a line in the sand and he said that the sea thus far and no farther. God draws the line where the ocean stops. That's, he does that. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these incredible things. These are but the outskirts 
of his ways. All these majestic things that you see, controlling the, the water cycle, telling the sea where to stop, going on and about the thunder, the thunder of his power, who can understand. These are but the outskirts of who he is. We're trying to figure out who God is by discerning his outskirts. Just, just his outer garment. Like think of the, the woman with the issue of blood who just grabs the hem of his garment. Trying to understand God and make him make sense to you when we can barely get a hold of the hem of the vastness and the greatness of who he is. We have but an outskirt of his ways. How small of a whisper do we hear of him? Thinking of, I love, um, I don't love walking around in the rain, but I love walking around in a thunderstorm. Like uh, if I can take refuge under a deck and have that thunder hit, it's just incredible to be outside. I mean, and you think about, you know, in here I can make an echo. Like, I can make sound bounce off of these walls with some amplification. But God is so vast, thunder echoes across the, the, the atmosphere and the ground. I mean, the echo, and Job writes, that's the whispers of God. <laughs> the thunders are his whispers. And so to think that we would be in the class of angels actually is just kind of creaturely humility. Why would I think I could look at every issue of my life and demand that God give me an explanation and understanding? He has revealed not all, and he could not indeed grant to us the fullness of his glorious plans, but he has revealed much to us. He has revealed to us the way of forgiveness in his gospel he has revealed to us the promise of a glorious future in knowing him. He has revealed to us that this promise that, the, that our labor in this world will not be in vain. Now, if you were to just jump in to the idea on this one sermon that and miss this long journey that we've taken to the conclusion of just you don't, may not understand, you should trust God. It sounds like a really poor Band-Aid. <laughs> It sounds like a really poor Band-Aid on a, on a or the, it's, it's the, um, the response of every wound. All it really needs is a Band-Aid. Just, oh, just trust God. Just, just trust God. You don't understand. That's not what we've done on this trek through this passage. We faced the deep wrestling that happens with the trials and their necessariness. The Psalter certainly doesn't cut short the realness of the griefs of this life. But after wrestling with the deep and hard reality of grief, after facing it head on, and in the midst of clinging to the sovereign hand of your creator, what we are often left with is a faith that can cling only to the outskirts, but a, but a, a true revealing of the character and nature of our God. And this clinging is a far safer place far more securing place than in the hands of our own understanding and trust in ourselves. Let's pray. Father, I, pr I pray that this giant work that you've invested in, that you've been fulfilling and working out, God, give us eyes to see it and to see it for the comfort that it is. We thank you for the work of Christ on the cross 
for our sins. We thank you for the salvation that is found in him alone. Father, may we anchor our lives to that hope and that truth so that in every high and in every low, we would not find ourselves tossed with the rumbling of the waves of the sea of this life, but anchored in the hope that there is in Christ and in him alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.